Have you ever gone just a little bit too long without being out in nature? And when you finally do, get amongst the trees. Once again, what is the feeling that you notice washing over your body? That feeling is a part of being human. And it is something that we often neglect or remove ourselves from in our structured lives, often spent in interiors with right angles and flat walls all around us. My guest on this episode is Dr. Prue Gibson, a prominent Australian author and esteemed research academic specialising in plant studies at the School of Art and Design at the University of New South Wales. She's an author, she's an educator, she's contributed significantly to the understanding of the relationships between humans, nature, and creativity, growth, who we are. Prue has profound insights into the intricate world of plants, art, and academia, and they are brought to life in her many books, including her latest work, The Plant Thieves, Secrets of the Herbarium, which document her three-year exploration of the incredible collection of 1.4 million specimens that's kept in the National Herbarium of New South Wales. It's a journey that explores the human connection to plants, how we rely on them to survive, and how we often destroy them to live our lives, how they could literally change our minds and how these plants hold the key to our future and our very survival. Unfortunately, these plants also document the tragic history of the colonization of Australia, as they do contain samples from what the Australian landscape looked like before we changed it forever. The very names of these plants reflect the hard, truth about colonial erasure of precious indigenous knowledge. Prue is on a mission to share the true story of the landscape around us as a part of decolonizing ourselves and our institutions. Now, any conversation around colonization in Australia comes with a warning. We are going to talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have died. There are some descriptions of massacres and what became of the remains of some of those people who were murdered during those massacres. It is tough to hear, but I personally believe that it is very important that we accept such things are a part of our history so that we can get about making it right and making a better future for all of us. Before we get to chatting with Prue, I need to play some ads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. He was only here for three weeks, Joseph Banks. Get out. Three weeks. And he's named everywhere and he's revered and like this hero. And most of the violence done towards Aboriginal people and to also to just kind of taking whatever he wanted and naming everything after himself was done in the 50 years after that trip or even 60 years after that trip. So it was all about the people that he sent uh-huh. to Australia on his behalf uh-huh. and, and the, everywhere around the world. So his kind of control and power extended for decades after his trip here. Wow. So that was when most of that imperial mastery happened. Yeah. He was the puppeteer. Right. And I don't think we we were never taught that at school. No. We were just taught that he was this great hero who yes. came with Cook and... Now we have the banks ...discovered here. everything. That is Dr. Prue Gibson. This is Osher Ginsburg, Better Than Yesterday. G'day, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday, bringing you ideas to make it better every week since 2013. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest, and Fridays, I'm here with you. Thanks for being a part of the show. My name is Osher Ginsberg. Uh, I am a podcaster, I'm an author, I'm a TV host, I'm a gold Logie nominated cardboard recycling bin taker adderer. Yes, indeed, I am. You don't have one of them in every suburb. <laughs> You're going to email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram and YouTube and the wildest shit memes are on TikTok. Uh, thank you so much for all the, all the emails. I love seeing what you're looking at when you're listening to the show. You've got a camera on your phone, whip your phone out, take a photo of what you're listening to, take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Uh, Claire has sent a fantastic picture. Claire is up on the mountain bike trails somewhere in Victoria. Wish I was up there riding with you, Claire, though I I do like my collarbone joints where they are. And um, sometimes, not all the time, men in their late 40s who take up mountain biking can occasionally part ways with their collarbone joints, Um, at least the small sample of gentlemen that I play poker with. uh, There's a few funny-looking shoulders because of mountain bike hobbies that have been taken up later in life. Uh, But, Claire, look, while you are up there in the bush, have a look at the trees and the plants all around you. I can see plenty in this picture. But have a look. Which of these plants look like they belong? which of them look like they don't belong. That's exactly the kind of stuff that Dr. Prue Gibson is going to talk about today. She also has some very interesting vibes on what some of those plants can do to your brain, but you'll hear more about that as we go on. Prue's latest book is well worth the read. It's called The Plant Thieves. Um, I'm a fan of Australian history and I'm a massive fan of of plants and being in the Australian bush, the smell of it, the sight of it, the sound of it, the feel of it, the danger of it, the safety of it. Reading this book, you will never look at the Australian bush in the same way. It is an extraordinary lens through which to view the landscape that we live in. Enjoy this conversation with Prue Gibson. 
Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. You made the the journey to to come be with us today, and um, I'm fascinated in what you're doing, particularly in the realm of like things like psychedelics and stuff. I think that's very fascinating. I've had my psychiatrist on the show. Um, Adam Bayes, he's one of the guys that works oh. at Black Dog. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. I don't know whatever lobbying's going on. That's the story. Yeah. The lobbyists. Is it not psychedelics who are lobbying because they know that their stuff is going to come underneath the similar? So I think what's happened was that there's this couple who he, she's an opera singer and he was an ex-funds manager and they got a lot of money and they were the ones that lobbied the TGA, the Therapeutics Goods Administration. Yes. So I went up for approval, I think, November 2022, mm-hmm. got knocked back yeah. and weirdly went up again in January 2023 and was approved. Yeah. And as your psychiatrist said, you know, you're supposed to go through first, second and third trials mm-hmm. before something gets approved. So... I think officially, I didn't know that the phase three trials had started. I thought oh. we were only up to phase two, according to the St. Vincent's in Melbourne. Right. There was a woman there doing oh, yes. phase two yeah. trials. Well, there's, his ones are, the ones that he's running a black dog at Prince of oh. Wales, just down like three, four k's from here. So this, so it's not there yet, but now oh. literally like next month, yeah. in two weeks' time, two weeks from now. psychiatrists will be able to prescribe it. But they're not supposed to be, yeah. <laughs> they're supposed to be, you know, have had experience you know, using psilocybin and MDMA in their in their work. So, but the problem is that those people that were lobbying have investments in pharmaceuticals and that are producing the, psilocybin. And this is the and yeah. this is the part that yeah. I am. And Adam was quite concerned about. And and I, you know, I understand as well as like in researching the show and getting ready to speak to him. You know, the idea of using these compounds and these plants in the treatment of very complicated treatment-resistant depression, which catastrophic depression, which is horrific stuff, and the ability to perhaps rewire neural pathways in a way that's not been done before, was explored in the 50s. Yeah. Yet, because it wasn't very regulated and the drugs mm. were getting out of labs and things like that, they just, it just got shut down. Yeah, it was whole, we lost whole 50 years of administration. But 50 years, it was much, it's got a much longer history than that. Right. So there's this really fantastic book called The Immortality Key by Brian Murorescu, who has never tried drugs. Excellent. N- never tried anything. Like he's a complete purist and he grew up um, with Jesuit priests and, um, and he got into the Vatican. He's done all this research into basically as far back as um, Plato, Aristotle, yeah. There were psychedelics used in their wine and beer. I have heard about that. Yeah. I've heard about that. And it was just, was it deliberate or was it just the fungus yes. that was growing on the crops? Deliberate. Deliberate. Wow. Wow. But, but you know, similarly to the way that it's used in a ritualistic way in cultures around the world, there yeah, there was ritual surrounding it. Exactly. It wasn't just like, hey, boys, yeah. come on around. Yeah. We're going to, you know, put on a Pink Floyd record and go yeah. for it. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is, it's used as a part of a ceremony. That's either. true. That's true. Uh, it was more ritualized. Yeah. And, and more spiritual. Yeah. And what less, less recreational. But, I mean, I don't, we don't know that. Yeah, like, so there's yeah. all this kind of, um, you know, sort of evidence, yeah. archaeological evidence, really, that supports these theories. Yeah. But... We don't really know anything about how they were used and what the context was. There's very few kind of ancient scripts to use and texts. But that book, The Immortality Key, is probably the best. Yeah. Because he's a he he speaks 
Sanskrit and he's a you know Greek and Latin scholar. And we've been eating plants since before you can speak, you know, um, and I'm sure at some point, you know, there's the the was it Terence McKenna? Yeah. Yeah, the the ones that followed the followed the cattle, yeah. ate the mushrooms that grow on the cow yeah. pads, and they had these gigantic leaps forward mm. in language and things like this, and that that part of the human condition might be, I want to feel what it's like to not feel like this for a while. Mm. And I wonder, because we seem to just constantly go for it. It's true. And it's about just, yeah, escaping our own egos mm. and drive. I mean, I guess, you know, I've been thinking about that recently, just the whole thing of having such a strong drive. It's, you know, a death drive, really. Yeah. How to avoid, for me, it's like my drive is to avoid boredom. Like I'm terrified of being bored. But there's something that drives all of us, whatever it is, mm. proving ourselves to someone or proving yeah. ourselves to us parents or or having other issues that just get you going and you keep wanting to prove yourself. Mm. Is it just is it just escaping death? I don't know. And so that's exhausting. <laughs> all, those it drives, is. all those drives are exhausting. It, me it, che- me running away from boredom like it's gonna, you know, nip at my heels mm. is just as bad as any other thing that drives yeah, us. Being bored's okay. Being yeah. bored is where ideas show up. I know. And the irony is as a writer, I have to get bored have before to. I get creative. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's ter- it terrifies me. I, I sort of – but so that's a little bit different though. Clearing your mind and mm. and not – and just absorbing information is different from being bored. Do we have any evidence? You said like it's difficult archaeologi- archaeologically to find out, but is, it, is, there any, is there evidence about where the use of plants and – trying to find insights beyond the, you know, day-to-day, there's water, there's food, there's erg, I'm going to, you know, mm. have sex with him and we're going to have more children. Yeah. Um, is there any evidence as to where that kind of thing started with humans? Well, what's what I found really interesting is that First Nations peoples all around the world seem to have already worked out these kinds of entities and use them if, everywhere around the world. You can you can kind of source mm-hmm. stories, indigenous stories, about the use of psychoactive plants. Except for Australia, I have had so much trouble finding information, and I've even I've talked to a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Either they don't have the the either they don't trust me to tell me, or they don't actually have access to the knowledge, or they're not allowed to share that information with me. Mm. But there's very little use. No, no Aboriginal people have seemed to have used acacia, which is an, a hugely developing use of for psychoactive purposes. But there's no, I can't find it anywhere. Knowing what very, very little I know mm. about um, knowledge from the, you know, these cultures in their country from people who are elders, I would say you are on the money in that is uh, but I can't tell you. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you. In fact, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Yes. I, I, it would be it would be nearly impossible to believe that an Indigenous it's culture that literally believe. lives at, in, in a way that is almost the permeable membrane that exists between the culture and the landscape around them, in this, particularly in Australian Aboriginal culture, is it's almost non-existent. There's literally no boundary between the people, the land, the plants, mm. the animals. It's They are literally all one. So it's impossible for me to believe that me too. those things didn't exist. The more plausible explanation is that there's heaps mm. and yet the, the, the amount of 
learning and ceremony that one would have to go to to gain access to those levels of knowledge and mm. uh, and and cultural learning would be like yes. decades before Maybe. someone would tell you. I agree with you. Look, there's so many Indigenous mushrooms, endemic mushrooms, that ha- to Australia that have psychoactive elements. And then the acacia as well. Like just the random one in your garden? Yeah. Or they, well, not all of them. Right. There's only 11, 11 yeah. But still. Yeah. There's about so I grew up in Brisbane where it was like, nah, bro, lick a cane toad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is quite new, the whole aca- drinking acacia thing. Yeah. So there's about 11 species of acacia that you that has this particular yeah. element that in the roots, in the leaves, in the bark. Yeah. But you just have to know how to take it. I um, A while back I did a whole podcast where I drew a thread between the colour red, as in the red coats are coming, that the um, British were using to make their army coats red and the invention of Wi-Fi through the cochineal bug, through prickly pear, through the creation of the CSIRO. Wow. And I learned, well, like I thought, because I, I knew the two were connected, mm. but it was like, hang on, what, how? And, um, yeah, I, we ended up speaking to one of the guys that worked on the team that um, that worked on, on Wi-Fi, John O'Donnell. He's an amazing guy. Wow. Uh, John O'Connell, one of the two. But I, during that, I was. I learned so much about how much of our landscape, how much of our natural habitat, how much uh, endemic species, grasslands, were just completely obliterated by this plant that was advancing in some places two and a half kilometres a year. Mm. Just astounding levels of growth from this plant, and that's just one example of like a like it's n- a non-human destruction of indigenous culture and when you particularly think about the cultural value of plants and animals and things like this considering how late the europeans bumped into australia and, I know. and had a go yeah when what how big are we talking when we think about how much was lost as far as names as far as usages of the plants that are all around us and I was just actually thinking about the B2 bush as well, like the B2 bush and the lantana. Oh, my gosh, Has yes. done so much damage. It's impossible to get rid of that stuff. Yeah. So there's – that's so – it's so interesting the kind of – and, you know, they're still referred to as alien species. Yeah, right. The Sorry, damage, Costa. Like, Costa keeps wanting to tell us that a weed is just a plant in the wrong place. I get you, Costa. Yeah, I understand. You empathy right. towards the weed. You are correct. The well, lantana's lovely. I love lantana. I love lantana and, too. not a great film, but – I love that film. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Wasn't I loved for me. it. Wasn't for me. I lo- I, you know, I loved it because a lot of the a lot of the um, shots were from within the lantana bush. All ah, right. So kind of like that idea of not not the agency of the of the bush, but yeah, it, there was like an implicit sort of just I guess an implied agency of the lantana. Well, I haven't seen it for as a, long a character, time. so maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but look, as far as as far as the loss, oh, but the of loss. Not only the the uses of some of these plants, or even the species themselves, but the the names. Like, what are what are we talking? Like, what we know versus what is or was there? Well, there, there's two there's two points. The the first one is I'm not exactly sure what the st- statistics are, but it's it's pretty much everything. Yeah, <laughs> that's number one. Number two, I was I did inter- interview this um this really beautiful person um, who is a um, plant expert up in the Cairns Tropical Herbarium. Yeah, yeah. And he's an Indigenous man who works with, with community and then goes to the community, comes back with his whatever they want him to do to mm. work in the um, Cairns Herbarium. And he was sort of talking, we were talking about spirit plants and mm. spirit animals. I said, oh, do you have 
uh, spirit plant that's yours. And he said, oh, no, no, I've got a, um, my, my people have this particular spirit animal, but I don't. But what I'm really interested in is the peanut tree. And he started talking about the peanut tree. And I said, oh, was that sort of allocated to you at birth? Was that a plant or a tree that was given to you? And he's like, no, 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 it's just a plant. It's just a tree that I'm interested in. And he's like, prudence, culture is ongoing. It's it's not static. Right. Which was, I know that's really obvious on the one hand, but yeah. I guess I thought that Indigenous information was all, everything that's happened in the past. Yes. In a way. Yeah. And that it's something that was lost. It never even occurred to me that it's ongoing. Well, that's the paradigm that I was particularly yeah. taught in school. I grew up in Queensland, so the state education system was definitely like, that was a thing. Yeah. It was the old, you know, we're smoothing the pillow, yeah. that kind of bizarre. And linear and yeah. chronological. Yeah. And therefore, you know, once Aboriginal people had been completely obliterated via all the massacres, then it ended. But, yeah. you know, there's... Whatever it is, 800,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, plus a, par- a friend of mine is doing this work with um, UNICEF um, because apparently over 250,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't even have birth certificates. Sad and unsurprising not, and also yes, sad. Yes, not surprising. Um, but still there's work to be done. So yes. there's a lot more people than we originally Yeah. Yeah. So the early people, Euros that came here, they were really riding away, pun intended, of we have mastered nature, we can cross the cross the globe, we are, can redirect rivers and dams and da 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 It was and very so churchy. Very, and very like, and God has decreed it upon exactly. us to be the ones that Correct. saves and therefore yes. all that stuff belongs to us because yes. a man in a big hat and a dress told us that. Yes, it's ours to take and we are actually doing you a favour by doing mm. this and let me look. You know what we need here? Foxes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and it's all re- it was all really faith-based too because it was like God will provide. Mm. So we can, we can overfish because it's not up to us to decide how much more there will be. Oh, man. Because you know what I mean? Like all of that um, Francis Bacon, the philosopher, yeah. that was what he kept saying. God has ordained this. It's God who's in charge, not human. So we can do whatever we want, meaning we men, androcentric, Eurocentric men, he actually meant. Yeah, yeah. And the same with Carl Linnaeus, the guy that the taxonomist that came up with our entire naming system of all the plants. Yeah. He believed that he had been ordained by God to decide what to do with agriculture. And the effect that he and Banks had on the whole world during that period and Australia. Yeah. You know, basically... I shouldn't lay all the blame at Banks's feet, but I've, I'm starting to learn how how much power he had after he left Australia. You know, there was only that three, he was only here for three weeks, Joseph Banks. Get out. Three weeks, and he's named everywhere, and he's revered and like this hero. And so he only went on one trip in his whole life, and that was to Australia. It was He was only here for three weeks. Look, he stopped in Tahiti and you know, did all sorts of stuff. And um, and then the rest of the time was back in Europe, in England, pulling the, the strings for what happened in Australia. So, wow. Yeah. So, so let's let's get our heads around that a bit. Like mm. the, the, the plants that we know as Australian, the colours, the smells, what influence did banks have? I mean, there's a tree in, across the street named after him. Yeah. I think he might have been a real asshole. Yeah, and what's the what's the evidence that you have for this? <laughs> Prue, it's your PhD. Oh, come on. But jo- so Joseph Banks 
was in the ear of George III. So he came out on this trip. He was, I didn't know, a lot of this stuff I didn't actually know before. He was really independently wealthy. So he lobbied to get on Cook's voyage and paid an enormous amount of money and, and paid for a whole team of people to come with him, including Solander. Cook used this essentially as a way of, here's some cash to help us, you know, provision the voyage or some money for the crown? I think it was more, yeah, decreed from Banks's um, contacts that right. Cook kind of had to take him. Ah. So Cook refused to take him on a second voyage. Ah. Ah, anyway, how so, bad are you? Yeah. Captain, Captain Cook. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> old Flaggy McShooty Pants says, nah, nah, Joe, you're too much. Yeah, Joe, Joe is a bad man. No, look, I have to be careful not to um, overplay yeah. and push push the pendulum back too far. But it does bother me. Um, like I went to Lincoln last year, which is in the middle of the UK, and it's a university town and has this beautiful cathedral. And I was with my partner's sister and we walked into the, the, the start of the cathedral and there was this huge new installation revering Joseph Banks as this hero. And there's some really, really, really awful stories about those first encounters. Such I mean, as? I mean, obviously there were. Um, well, and not just in the 77, not in 70, the 1770 trip, but much later. I can tell you the story about Amelie Dietrich afterwards. Yeah. The German collector um, is a really interesting story. But that tell whole me more about colonial, Banks. Tell me more like about why, why was he a bad man? Well, he, in a sense, I guess he was privileged. You know, on the way they went to Tahiti and he just, you know, had sex with all those women. Um, and you've got to wonder, oh, how did that happen and why did it happen? And reading Cook's Voyages, which are, um, I found by accident on my own bookshelf. I don't know whether that ever happens to you. Sometimes. <laughs> um, there's a superiority, a misogyny um, about all of those firsthand well, they, they ha- uh, had to. Otherwise, I how are they going to morally really justify what they're doing? It's so hard to stomach. Yeah, but they had no reason to believe it wasn't the case. No. You know, it was terrible. I know. Yeah. But they really believed that Tahitian people and that Australian Aboriginal people were animals. Oh, man. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Like, yeah. it's really stomach-churning to read those yeah. those firsthand um, accounts. And so when, when Banks got here, like, was he, a, like, did, um, was there a qualification to be a botanist at the time? Did he have a qualification or did he just call himself one? Yeah, no, that's a good point. He was a self-appointed botanist. But ah. he, yes, but he was, I think he was pretty good. Like, he yeah. did send back, you know, thousands and thousands of plants. Apparently, Cook there was frustrations between Banks and Cook because Cook wanted to keep moving and Banks wanted to be able to be on, on shore and collect as many plants as possible. Taking my cuttings, mate. Yeah. But there, so there was that three-week trip. So we we always think of him as this great imperial, you know, yeah. fantastic explorer, yeah. like conquering the world and and doing and, – and he was under instructions from the government to take whatever whatever land he could and claim it. But he was only here for three weeks. So most of the, can we call it damage? No, damage is too strong. Violence is not too strong. Most of the violence done towards Aboriginal people and to also to just kind of taking whatever he wanted and naming everything after himself was done in the 50 years after that trip or even 60 years after that trip. So it was all about the people that he sent uh-huh. to Australia on his behalf uh-huh. and and the, everywhere around the world. So his kind of control and power extended for decades after his trip here. Wow. So that was when most of that imperial mastery happened. Yeah. He was the puppeteer. Right. And I don't think 
we, we were never taught that at school. No. We were just taught that he was this great hero who yes. came with Cook and now we have the banks. Discovered here. everything. Yeah. yeah, discovered stuff for people who had been living here for literally tens yes. of thousands of years. Exactly. Who probably had names and ways yes. for everything. Exactly. So you me- you mentioned earlier. Um, we call it the banks here. Can yeah. we call it anything else? Do we know what it was called? Yeah. So there. So the thing about the banks here, which so I'm obsessed with the banks here now. Why not? It's an yeah. extraordinary plant. It's so extraordinary, and. I don't know about you because I don't know how old you are, but I'm 54. So I'm I was 50, born in 1969. And um, so I was brought up on the um, Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie books yes. by Mae Gibbs, yep. which are, I guess now, unfortunately, I've had to face the truth. They're really racist. Yep. <laughs> so. Oh, that's right. There's a Banksia character. Yeah, yes, there there's, the, there's the evil Banksia man yeah, who right. steals the white babies. Steals the white babies. And it's like, God, that's ironic. May. Yeah. May. May. I mean, poor May. I'm sure she was trying her best, but she's... So there's really interesting article about that kind of erasure of Aboriginal presence or stories in a lot of early Australian literature, which is another kind of form of violence and Mm. another kind of form of um, obliteration of culture. Purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. So, but back to the Banksia. I've always thought of the Banksias as really being quite ugly because some of them are messy and Mm. scrubby and sort of scrappy, and now I'm completely in love with them. But the thing about the naming is that um, your Banksia across the road will, it changes, as you know, so much from season to season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've sometimes you've got the cones, sometimes you've got the flowers. It's, um, it, with each season, the names for the different parts of the Banksia tree change, and a kilometre down the road in any direction, all those names will be diff- completely different. Wow. according to a different Aboriginal group of people. Wow. So it's really hard to think about try naming. So a lot of the um, Royal Botanical Gardens in New Zealand and Australia are trying to try name where they have the Latin name that Linnaeus came up with and then a common name, which we probably all know, yeah. and then add an Aboriginal name. But, of course, it's really difficult to do that because yeah. there's such a multiplicity yes. of names. Um and there's this amazing woman called Zena Cumston, who's um, an Indigenous woman down in, based down in Melbourne, and she was telling me on the phone after I'd written this book um, that there's prefixes and suffixes to Aboriginal words for plants that also give cultural direction. Right. So there might be like a prefix, prefix or a suffix to a word for the Banksia that also says fire uh-huh. because Banksias need heat and smoke to release the so- the seeds from the cones to reproduce. It's like that is so sophisticated mm. to have a word that also has agricultural instruction. Yeah. And I, I nearly die yeah, when she it's told me this. It's like yeah. the Aboriginal people are so sophisticated. Oh yeah, the and yeah, it's it's What do we l- have in English that's like that? Nothing. The, the level of knowledge uh, and the level of in- intimate knowledge of these, like, in 10 square metres of land of the hundreds if not thousands of organisms that live about how each one of those interplays is incredible and how it can, as, you know, a culture without refrigeration, how it can keep you alive Mm. all year round, how this land, your life literally depended on knowing Mm. exactly how everything worked. And I, I do love that it's a tree, it's a plant, 
that fire is a huge part of it. And, you know, you know, it's it's not evidence that we should do cultural burning, but like here's this thing that's been here for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and, you know, fire is the reason that it works. Maybe that's because fire's always been a part of this and controlling how that fire works might be a way to think about how we manage the land around us and more and more so in coming years. That's it's getting you know, dangerous. This part of the city that we live in, I'm, I'm in Sydney, whereas we're recording this in Sydney, and this part, this bit of land that we live on and this kind of bit between Sydney Harbour and, you know, whatever, where the airport is, mascot, Botany Bay. Botany Bay, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> there's a particular kind of Banksia that's just here. Yeah. You know, so I'm, surely there's like a name that mm. works for that, that plant yeah. that, that is in this area. Yeah. Well, you're right because so Butney Bay or Camay all the way up to North Head, so eastern suburbs of Banksia scrub used to be like 5,300 hectares of it all up and down the coast where we are right now and now it's um, shrunk down to about 80 hectares. There's a bit at Centennial Park, a little bit at Moore Park, there's a bit at um, North Head and down at Lapa and um, there's the Banksia Banksia serrata and the Banksia integrifolia are the two main Banksia types that are there, mm-hmm. but they're Latin names, so I don't know yeah, what right. I don't know what the. Wow. I mean, in Digigrode, who are based down at La Perouse, right. that they will have names. I don't know whether they'll share them with you. That's fine. Um, We've got the heap stuff in our garden from those. Guys. Yeah, yeah, I know. Great. It's they're really so good. fantastic. They're super cool. But the but I actually um, volunteer the Centennial Park with the Eastern Suburbs Banksy Scrub. Uh, so you can go in. I mean, it's weeding, but sometimes they let you plant. I'm around for it. Oh, it's so fantastic. I come out of doing that volunteering feeling like I've achieved more than a PhD every single time. <laughs> is, All I've done yeah. is weeding. It's very it's very special. It's it, so special. It, it's a very special part of the, you know, because, I mean, we're privileged to be in this part of the city where we have the space to allow bits of bush to come back. You know, which is always a thing that is incredible to get your head around that, no, it's fine, nature will do it. You know, if you humans stop, nature will show up again. It, from, I'm not you know. sure. I've I've actually changed a little bit over yeah, the last few years. So I for a while I've been thinking white Australian humans need to back the fuck up mm. and just leave everything alone because we keep ruining everything. But more recently, I've been realising that even, the, and this Eastern Suburbs Banksy Scrub is a good example. Yeah. Because what's happened is because there's no fire stick farming or backburning mm. that is being done, and the, the the Centennial Park, used to be the gardens, has explained to me that it's really difficult because it doesn't really make logical sense, but it's very bureaucratic. They book in a, a fire stick farming, a fire stick burning, fire stick farming, and when that day comes, if it's too windy or the conditions are no good, they don't do it. Oh. And then you have to wait another year to do it. Oh. Which sounds like a lot of red tape, kind of, you know, very typical institutional very. management. But what happens is that the remnant bush, the tea trees get too big. Yeah. And 
because and then the the undergrowth isn't burned off, so it gets too high. Yeah. And so a lot of the ground cover doesn't grow properly, and then the banksias can't get enough sun, so they don't get big enough. So in a sense, we actually do as humans probably have to interfere. And this is the, the and this is the thing that you know the whole terra nullius thing. You know, they showed up and going, well, what's evidence? Farming. That's an evidence of farming. They went, ah, this is bush. Mm. There's no fences. Yeah. There's no herds. There's no but. If you kind of, you know, get the drone in the air and have a look from above, like actually that whole clearing mm. is burned exactly that way. Exactly. And that grass has been, it's been burned so that particular grass grows there. So at a certain time of year, the kangaroos get out of the trees and they're out in the open. Exactly. And then it's dinner time. Yeah. And, but that's farming. Yeah, that's right. But it doesn't look that way to a European eye. Yeah. Shall I tell you about the black bean story? Tell me about the black beans. Okay, so this is exactly what you're talking about. So, and it's kind of, it troubles me a little bit, but Denise I don't know Ora, if having any conversations about <laughs> this country after 1770, or the Doif can really, can not be troubled. So, I've sorry. got two really troubling stories to tell you. So Denise Aura, who is the um, director of the Royal Botanical Gardens, she looks like Wonder Woman. I've got a crush on her. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She's charismatic. Mm. She's gorgeous. And she's kind of powerful. You know, she's mm-hmm. got she's got presence. Yeah. Anyway, I went in to um to interview her for the book and she told me about the black bean story, which was it was a collaboration between um Aboriginal researchers, elders, and genetic researchers at the gardens. And they had been interested in this black bean seed. So the black bean seeds are really quite big, mm. like as big as a golf ball. Oh wow. And they so they can't really be moved by birds eating them and flying and pooing them out or wind sweeping them up and and mm-hmm. you know um, distributing them yeah. like a lot of other plants get yeah, like, yeah. like the lantana the very, reason it's very common mechanism or like a yeah. daf- a daffodil uh, Exactly. Daffodil. Yeah, daffodil. You pick it up. All <laughs> exactly. It everywhere. So that's how a lot of those um, plants get distributed. The elders had told the botanists at the gardens about this song line, which came down from Cape York and all the way th- across New South Wales. And it was wow. the story of a of a traveller who had a, a sack of black beans on his back. So the geneticists teamed up with the elders and said, could you show us, can we go, can we re-walk that song line and collect black bean seeds to find out how they could be distributed like that. Yeah. So they worked together. They did this huge trek and collected all these black beans well, along Cape the way. Well, from Cape York through as well. All the way through. Wow. A huge team of people. Wow. And then took them all back to the lab and they were exactly the same genetic makeup. Right. Which proved or was evidence for the fact that those seeds had been carried. They'd been carried, yeah. stored, planted, harvested, Carried, stored, planted, harvested. So, you know, Denise Ora, with great enthusiasm and great excitement, was like, this is this really good collaborative cross-cultural project that we've done together. And we now have evidence that Aboriginal people undertook agriculture. You know, they weren't just hunters and gatherers. They harvested and, and stored and all of this stuff that we think of as being very European. And I was like, that sounds like a really good news story. But I felt kind of uncomfortable for a while. I was like, why does that story make me feel so uncomfortable? And I realised we're just recolonising. And I've recolonised so many times. I've failed my decolonising a million times over. Because what she's actually saying is we knew these stories, these Aboriginal stories, but we didn't really believe them until we could test them genetically Uh in in a lab. 
Right. So as usual, we don't really believe anything until we can prove it or evidence it. Surely there's a way to, you know, collaboratively, to respectfully a- applaud and show and like, wow, look at this thing. Yeah. You know, this is amazing. Incredible. You could literally walk mm. from Sydney to Catherine and never be hungry if you knew the right songs. Fucking hell, man. It's amazing. Like, that's unbelievable. And that's an incredible story to tell that that shows for me the incredible technology and wisdom and knowledge that is just involved in in a culture on an unbelievable level of navigation and food and plants and everything. Surely there's a way to tell that story without you know, being the lady wearing the Indian headdress at Coachella, which is it always, we go straight back to that every time. Yeah. There's got to be a place that isn't that. Yeah, it, there is. And I've got a friend, John Wade, who works at the National Arts School. He calls me Miranda. You know, Miranda from Picnic and Hanging Rock. Oh, my God. <laughs> Miranda, Miranda. So he's just like poking fun at me for being such a colonial, colonial white woman. Um, but he said to me, because I've, Asked him, how am I supposed to do this? Like it's yeah. so hard. I want I can't not do it. I yeah. can't do it. I'm really stuck here. And he was like, No, you're one of the grey people. We need the grey people. The grey people. And and this is you know, for me, this is the conversation. This is an example for me of conversations that need to be had, exploration that needs to be done, convers you know boundaries that need to be explored and set. Yeah. And breaking down the ones that we already set by mistake. That that we're often too afraid to even talk about. Yeah. Because it doesn't get us anywhere. And sometimes for me, if like not having those conversations just perpetuates, just because we don't have a way to do this that isn't, at this point, isn't extractive and isn't, you know, uh, exploitative or isn't appropriative, doesn't mean we shouldn't have the conversation and like in the best intent you know, with the best thing in our heart as we possibly can to understand that, look, we're, we're, we're building the steam engine and we are just going to trust that tracks will show up, but we can't not build the steam engine because otherwise nothing happens. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great risk that we have in intellectual places such as university campuses where you work that we're so afraid sometimes and and that's the place where we should be able to have dangerous shit. That's yeah. where conversations with the best intent in mind have to be happening. If we say, like, that person can't come lecture here because they think Joseph Banks is awesome, then... No, you're right. Like, what are we going to do? Like That's that, right. 98% you're of what right. that person says might be bunkum, yeah. but they might say 2% of something that you go... Actually, yeah, you know, That's I, really I interesting. fucking hate you, buddy, but that... Right well, I, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, I do find... I would like to know more about Banks. I think he's an interesting character. But shall I tell you the probably one of the worst extractive stories? Boy, look, what, more, better than Lang Hancock and the and the Poison the Well? Because that yeah. was pretty fucking bad. No, that... No, no, well, you can decide. <laughs> okay. So, Amelie Dietrich was a German woman, 1850s, um, quite poor and quite uneducated. And she married this guy who was a, a pharmacist and he was like making lots of his pharmaceutical products from plants that they collected. So she learnt a little bit about the botany through her husband. And then they had a child, Charitas, and then the fa- the husband had an affair with the nanny who was looking after the daughter. The classics. So Armelie decided to fuck off out of there. Yeah. And so there was this really rich guy called Godefroy, and he 
had a lot of money and he, like Banks, was sending people out in this very imperialist way mm. to go and collect plants because it was all about you, whoever has the best natural history collection and can, you know, place a stake wherever they mm. go and get these natural history mm. objects and things were the strongest. It was like a real sort of sign of nationalist I've, fervor. I've conquered the... I've, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I have control of yes. the land. Yes, come and look at my herbarium or my yeah. cabinet of curiosities, my which is evidence. My, yes, my yeah. greenhouse is full. Yes, my greenhouse. I am growing a pineapple, <laughs> which in I've some cases needed a coal-fired coal fucking furnace to make sure you could grow a pineapple. Exactly. In, and it's not very the, sustainable. Get the people it? in the house the help to yeah. tend the fire so the fucking pineapple would grow. Exactly. So Godefroy was like that. So Amelie Dietrich, a woman, 1850s, came out to Australia, went up to far north Queensland, which on her own. Wow. So a really interesting woman, and she apparently, she collected something like 3,000 plants to send back to Godefroy, um, which became a really important collection for the German museums, um, the Humboldt Museum because Humboldt was a natu- German naturalist as well. So she she also uh, amassed the best spider collection that still exists today. Wow. So she was an amazing woman. And what she also did was that she had been asked by Godefroy, so it wasn't just her, yeah. but she also sent back eight ske- human skeletons. Right. And in some of the papers and documentation around the research that I did about her, she asked some of the squatters up in Queensland to go and shoot Fuck. some for the pelts. For their pelts. For their pelts. Right. So these eight skeletons, as you can see, then apologies to anyone who's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. I'll in put the a audience. warning at the start of the show. Thank yeah. you. Um, they were murder victims. Or they were dug up. Okay, so like grave, proper grave digging, grave robbing stuff. Yeah. So it's unclear whether they, how many were shot and how many she just got. Right. But, um, but during World War Two, they were all, they were, everything was sent away from Godefroy during World War Two. Yeah. And apparently they don't exist anymore, which wow. I'm not surprised because how do you explain that? Far out. It's important. I, I do talk about this a bit in that even the most, baddest baddie we can think of. Yeah. They believe they're doing the right thing. I know. And And I'm sure Banks was the same. Putin thinks he's doing the right thing. Correct. And this lady was thinking, oh, man, I'm doing such a good job for science here because these organisms, not humans, these organisms, these creatures here, they need to be studied. Really fascinating stuff. I wonder how much we can explore and advance science through this. Correct. Let's go. Off your pop. Mm. And and that's that. Yeah, the ethics were... Boy, man. Yeah, it's hard to stop just taking a moment away from Dr. Prue Gibson to let you know that if this show has brought any value to you, please do us the kindness and share it. That is the very best thing you can do for us here at the show. Just there's a three dots or a hamburger or an arrow somewhere in your podcast app. You can screenshot, put it on your feeds, text it to someone, put it in a group chat, whatever. Just if you could share this episode with somebody this week, that would be the best, best, best thing you could do for us. It really, really, really helps because people come and go all the time from you know and yes please do subscribe please like it please rate it please follow or whatever you can do but just sharing this podcast with other people is the very best thing you can do for us it means a lot uh i don't have the massive marketing oomph that other podcast hosts have uh, because i am not part of a massive 
<laughs> broadcast network that has got a podcast division. I'm just me. So uh, any help you can give us would be fantastic. If you want to email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. That's where you can find us. Back in a moment with Dr. Prue Gibson. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. To ethics, we were speaking mm. at the start of this about psychedelics and psychedelics oh, yeah. and psychoactive substances. Yeah. Uh, we topic. live in an extraordinary time where these things are, we're recording this at a time where we're just a number of weeks away from them being able to be prescribed under quite heavily controlled conditions, but I am very, I'm concerned about the permeable membrane Me between that prescription and, you know, suddenly... Somewhere in Byron Bay in some strange place. Byron, got, fucking, you know, yeah, Sunny Bank in Brisbane. You yeah, know, yeah. someone's, you know, decided know. to, you know, build something in their garage and that's it. I really think your listeners should be very wary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, the, the, be wary that it's not a, um, it's, it's, it's not a magic wand. No, it's and, just a door that can open. Yeah. So you need, you know, I think that you need, and like a lot of these kind of um, cultural or, therapeutic or spiritual processes, mm. like, you know, ayahuasca, you wouldn't want to take ayahuasca without having, you know, fasted mm. and been under the under the kind of tutelage of a, of a proper shaman who knows yeah. how much to give you and when and uh, under what circumstances and when you're ready. Mm. So the same thing for all of this stuff. I mean, it's it's and also it's a little bit different just taking a little bit of psilocybin with your friends. And undergoing these quite huge doses that they're talking about. Heroic doses, yeah. as uh, Terence McKenna would say. Right, exactly. Uh, it's interesting to because to, I read there was, uh, ayahuasca was used very recently, like uh, in the last two weeks. There was a, a plane crash in the highlands of Colombia, I think, mm-hmm. indigenous tribe. Um, they use light planes to get around because there's no roads. And there was a family and... The plane crashed, the pilot died, the mum lived about four days. There were three kids on board, 13, oh, yeah. nine, and I think really four months old. Yeah. And they were like inaccessible. Like there's no roads anywhere in or out. Mountains, 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 ravines, mountains, gorgeous mountains, waterfalls. And there's people that have been out searching and there was like, okay, well, there was a word for it. I don't know what it was, but it is, they used ayahuasca and they tried to say, okay, well, you know, we're going to have to turn around and go back, but like last, last ditch, let's try to use this thing to see if we can. To find them? To find them. Oh, that makes sense. And then the, you know, they'd made it the night before and the article, which was written in a, you know, very 
it wasn't like it was a very reputable source, um, like a, a BBC or a Guardian or an ABC or something like that. Yes, that's where I read my news. Okay, so <laughs> um, spoke about the vomiting, spoke about the shakes, spoke about everything. Like you know, they reported this, and the next day, the oldest person who was with him was in their sixties, and he said, "Oh, there's a little bit left in the pot." He says, "Okay, give it a shot," and um, he finished it. Oxy didn't want to waste it. The mixture is quite difficult to prepare, mm-hmm. and after the vomiting and stuff like that, he goes, "I know where it is," and they found him before sunset. Was it because that he was it because he heard the plants talking to him across I the whole forest? Do not know because I've heard that that is a um, part of the, often sometimes the experience of ayahuasca. That like anything that you take like that, mm. where you suddenly start to like I took a little bit of psilocybin recently, and I was listening to the cicadas because it was summer. Mm. You know when you hear the cicadas like ooh, 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 they're telling ooh, you the temperature, ooh. yeah. But but I wasn't. It's not like the cicadas were talking to me or anything. But I, for the first time, I could hear the different registers of sound. Yeah, right. Yeah. So instead of just hearing that one note, that mm. thrumming one note of the cicadas, I could hear like so many different tones and registers wow. of sound. Right, and I understand that ayahuasca is a little bit like that. That you can you can hear the plants, right. or there's some kind of kind of tapping the, the, into the communication. And and this is what like um, when I read that, I I don't particularly believe that he suddenly t- you know p- plugged into the, the the mycological framework that exists under the mm. earth that the trees talk to each other about mm. pathogens and things with the fungus well, that lives in the did, dirt. Maybe he did in a way. I, I, I can't get there. I'm open to it. I'm sure. Yeah. But for me, it it's like maybe that helped piece together things that as someone who's walked through the bush for 64 years True. has seen on the walk, has deduced and, you know, like a broken branch here or a thing there or whatever or a flight path or whatever and once all of his preconceived notions and all the gates and all the, you know, uh, automatic thought processes had been removed, mm. then the answer appears. Yeah. Um, I, would, I, I have an easier time believing yeah, that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It doesn't mean that that sort of thing sounds extraordinarily powerful. And it doesn't mean that people should be using it. It's like, I can't figure out what to do about no. this boyfriend of mine. No. I'm going to take some ayahuasca. No. Like, these things... They're powerful. Very powerful stuff. And when, you, when you're talking about, like, you know, to take some some psilocybin as a, you know, you're not going to sit down and listen to an Aphex Twin record and go, woo. Like, you you have a purpose before you take this. Yeah. Is that correct? Co- yeah, for me, yes. I mean, I'm, like, complete chicken shit. I don't like, you know, I don't like getting out of control. Mm. But wanting to write about plants and wanting to write about psychoactive communities of people, mm. I just felt like a real fake. Mm. So unlike Brian Murarescu, who's mm. written The Immortality Key, which is all about the whole history of, of psychedelic plants mm. and drugs, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. So um, I just took a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Were you alone? Were you happy no. with you? No. I had my partner with me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, wow. Mm. Was it a was it an effect that you know, lasted or to give you a different perspective? Yeah, from that? it only lasted like two hours because mm. I only took a little bit because I'm chicken shit. No, no I and, would, I would you know, start small. Yeah, like, start start take really a half small. and see if you feel anything. Take the other half later. And cacao's a good one. Like if people are curious or just or feeling like a little bit spiritual or want to get closer to plant life or want to understand plants a little bit more, um, cacao's good because it's really mild. As well. Hang on, I've got cacao upstairs. Like, how yeah, much cacao, cacao are we talking? A lot, 
a lot. So my friend, who's a shaman, I'm not allowed to say what her name is. That's okay. Um, she has given me cacao twice, and it's really quite mild. But she makes me she the first time, I try not to drink it all because I'm a chicken shit. And then the second time, she was like sat next to me and was like, "Drink it all." <laughs> but what? So what? And then you meditate, and right. um, so she plays really kind of nice music, and yeah. um, you cover your eyes, uh-huh. and it's really visual. So it's it's just it's really mild. It's like just having a couple of glasses of wine. Like it's right. not like you're out of your mind at all. But it's just very visual. And yeah, wow, it's beautiful. So I've had um, as a, a somebody I know who's Samoan, and um, I've had they have made Samoan cacao as a drink in the morning. To have it doesn't sound like what you're having, but no. I had it that morning and I didn't need coffee that day. Well, but and it, it was really quite good. And actually, I've got to admit, like coming down from the cacao ceremony is not nice. It is like having way too much coffee. All oh, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating. I had a really bad headache for a couple of days. Well, if yeah, mm. like most things, if yeah. you've never had it before, your body's just going to try exactly. to recalibrate, recalibrate afterwards. Yeah. When it comes to things like um, you know agriculture in this country, mm. we are already dealing with things like. You know, water is a real problem because we mm. need it. Yeah, we need it to live. We need it to drink. We need it to grow food. Mm. Um, you know, some of it is used a lot in certain farming practices that maybe we could use more efficiently elsewhere. Um, when it comes to what things we might be able to cultivate at scale, I was saying to you upstairs before we can't let perfect be the enemy of good. Like, you know, agriculture and mass mechanized agriculture is how we're alive. We're like we're all here because of the Haber Bosch process. We don't like to f- remember that, but yes. we are. But it doesn't you know. have to be monoculture. No, it doesn't have to be monoculture. That's the problem. So I think. pushing forward, and thankfully in Australia, mm. there's plenty of farmers that are very interested in this mm. um, because I understand this is how to care for their land. Yeah. This is how to make sure their land can stay sustainable, and this is how they can, you know, not try to shoehorn this crop that's so not for this exactly. country into. But to make it work here, it's just preposterous amounts of things yeah, they have to like do to cotton. the soil. Yeah. Quite cotton. Yeah. So when it comes to using plants that are already here, what mm. is the what does the future look like? And you know, f- particularly around for our food supply. Yeah. Oh, that's a big question. It I is. Mean, you know, I mean, I can. Uh, I know that my cousins who um, have a big farm out near Kula are changing their practices completely. So it's yeah. interesting that a lot of small, small to middle sized farmers are really, you know, they they you know when I used to go up there when I was a kid, they were always they. You know, just saying, oh, you're a greenie. It's like, what? I didn't even know what the Green Party yeah, right. was. Like, there was this kind of, you know, you're a city slicker, you're a greenie, you don't understand what it's like on the land. It's hard oh. on the land. We've yes. got to slaughter our beef and our sheep and we yeah, eat that. And, tons of phosphate. And we're really, in we go. we're tough and we're, we're yeah. you know, like you guys just don't have a clue what it's like down yeah, the city. Yeah. So it was kind of like that. I loved going up there because it was a very male It's very much like saying to a cop, I pay your taxes. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. It it's is like, like that. Look, mate, yeah. Come on, I get yeah. that we eat, but is there a better way to do it? Yeah, but they have changed so much. So it's just so, so much inf- misinformation over the years. They pulled out all the weeping willows along the creek uh-huh. because they need so much water. But then what happened was all the s- creek beds eroded. So n- the next few times that it flooded, it flooded really badly. And, right. and so the whole line of the creek changed, you know, irreparably. Yeah. Stuff like that, you know, like, as you said before, we're all trying to do the best we can. Um, the weeping willows are an introduced plant. They were an int- yes. yeah, they were an introduced plant, and they were, and they take up a lot of water. So they were doing the right thing, but they didn't immediately replant something else. Not not yeah, not knowing. So lots of stuff like that. But I mean, I know, I know cotton farmers, you know, who've got 
massive properties are still growing cotton. So, you know, the, like, I, I don't feel very confident that there's enough legislation to make decisions about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, we should be doing more, more, you know, permaculture around the city and in the city and on the edges of the city. Yeah. Why can't we just do more of that? I mean, why can't we all just grow our own vegetables? Even people in flats or with lots of people in the flats, yeah. even if you've just got a windowsill, all you really need is light. Yeah. You know, there's kind of no excuse for not growing some of your own food. Even I, just a little bit. What does that do? Even just a little bit. How does it change how you look at the world? Well, for me, it changes in me. And, like my sense of well-being, well-being is enormously changed by that. Mm. Like just having a garden plot. I've I've got a really small uh, backyard, and it's just it's all I just plonked my um my garden bed on top of the tiles. Mm. Um, but I can get a lot of food out of that. So it makes me feel good. Yeah. And you know, like uh, the students, I teach sustainable design, and I've had feedback from the students sometimes where they say, sometimes we feel like you expect us to come up with all the solutions to all the kind of shit show that you guys have left for us. Yeah, that's like, yeah, a fair, fair point. Fair, fair point, fair point. But I also feel like maybe now all we've got is to be optimistic and all we've got, I mm. do believe in like I actually strongly believe in grassroots change, like just growing your own little bits and pieces. Yeah, like so many people in their 20s or in their teens are like, what's the point? You know, what's the point of recycling all this stuff? It's just a waste of time. And I understand that position, but but what if everyone does it? Like, what if we all just do a little bit? It it all adds up. It does add up. So, I, and, you know, we've got yeah. to lobby and we've got to be activists and we've got yeah. to, you know, write letters and, and ask what's happening with farming and, yeah. you know, stop land clearing. Yes. Stop pulling, logging native forests. Like, that's a good start. It was the, the, coal mines. the economic case to log native forest. Does it even yes. make sense? Yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense. I, I know that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm like wondering. Like, it, I can't remember what the statistics are, but it's sort of like it. they make what, 20 cents per tree? Good fuck. Something like that. It's just ridiculous. It's not an It's not viable. <sighs> and they're doing it because obviously it's their communities that, that votes, you know, that make a difference for them in terms of their electorate. But, but yeah, there's there's a lot to, there's a lot to be done. But mm. you know, we need to eat. We need, we to, need eat. to have clothes. Yes. There might be other options. Yeah. That aren't so destructive. Yes. There may be things that might be a little more efficient. It's true. Cost-wise, like yeah. yeah, you can grow this here, but to grow it you need to truck in this much yeah. water or buy this much water or shove this much phosphate into the ground or spray this many things. Like yeah. that's an expensive per kilo of whatever it is. Yes. Is there a thing that could be as good or close to it? Are we really that? Like, no, I have to have my bananas year-round. Yeah. Like I've got a bowl of bananas upstairs. I know they have come from a very long way. It's so true. And I think that's the whole sustainability (laughs) question, isn't it? It's it's about transport. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's about packaging. It's about water. It's about um, energy. Yeah. So if you're you're buying your bananas from somewhere that's really far away and it has to be planed out here, you know, forget it. Stop it. We need need to. I know, right. We need to stop it. I think about that with, um, I read once that there's a fourth, there's a fourth climate zone on Earth. The four, I don't know how many climate zones there are, but there's like, say if there's eight climate zones, like all the way from Arctic to subarctic to blah, 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 there's another one and it's the refrigerated zone. And that if you th- put all the square meterage of refrigerated space on the planet together, it's yeah. colossal. Wow. 
colossal. I'm talking yeah. about every container, every out the back of a supermarket, every truck that's driving here from Cape York. Yeah. You know, with a freshly slaughtered carcass in it. Yeah. That's and it's got to stay refrigerated. It needs to the energy required to keep it frozen. Yeah. Is astounding. So you're kind of saying ethical. What you're, I think you're saying is we have to get better at ethical eating. Yeah. Ethical shopping, ethical farming. But ethical's got such a word about it. It's like I've got a fucking linen shirt on on Instagram making everyone feel guilty because they're not me. And that's terrible. Mm. That's not going to make anyone want to no, do it. No, it's that's like then smug superiority, isn't it? It's the worst. That righteousness. It's the worst. I hate it. It is. Well, I don't want to do that vegan. either. I hate it. I can't stand it. Yeah, I, I haven't eaten meat that. for 20-something years. I love meat. Oh, I haven't eaten that since the mid-90s. Yeah, I haven't wow. eaten, Like I haven't eaten any animal products. It's very responsible. I've oh, got to stop eating meat too I just can't, and sugar. I just I can't, but I don't want to identify. I've spoken about this before. I just don't want to identify with that. Anything that involves a race to purity, yeah. um, it's an instant turn off. It's like it is a turn it's off. like literally someone knocking on your door saying, do? Can I give you Watchtower magazine? You're like, yeah. actually, no, fuck off. I don't no, yeah. I don't want your JW shit. Go away. Like it's the same thing. It is. So to say so like, oh, we need to find an ethical food source. Like, oh, you fucking need. take well, away my it, steak. Is it just not needing to know? Like, um, my partner's daughter li- literally this week said, Do you realize it it takes 70 liters of water to do one wash in your washing machine? I was like, what? What? Really? Yeah. yeah. And then I Googled it. It was like the average amount is a six, 65 to 70 litres. So, I mean, obviously we need to stop washing our clothes and just be, yeah, be, no, I don't know what to do. That's and okay. th- this is the problem. The question is to ask. Yeah. It, the question is the question to, is to uh, ask. Well, there's this group called Solar Punks. Have you heard about Solar Punks? Tell me about Solar Punks. Well, it's an aesthetic. It's a, because my area is actually art. It's a group or, or an epoch of artists who are yeah. really interested in coming out of the cyberpunk thing. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's sci-fi and climate change fiction. Just yeah. s- instead of being dystopic and thinking there's nothing we can do, mm. it's really utopic. And it's also coming out of Art Nouveau, which is really anti-capitalist. So, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not the best proponent, but I like learning about these groups and these kind of manifestos of what we could mm. do better. It sounds like the kind of someone's been listening to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of shit I talk about. Yeah. Because there's got to be a well, way. Like if you can't, punk. If you can't get, like tonight, we're recording this on the night of a state of origin football oh, game, yeah. right? Mm. And if you can't, if you if you can't communicate your message mm. about hey this is a good idea and have the audience that watches State of Origin go mm. actually you're right that is a good message then yeah. you've got to fucking work on your message because that's, that's so who you true. have to speak to it's you so have true. to speak to that crowd yeah otherwise we're fucked but I'm not sure that crowd is very interested it's okay if you make it worth their while they'll be interested mm. oh that's true that's right but, yeah. but that, that crowd like they're interested in footy I'm yeah. part of that crowd yeah I'm interested in footy sure and. It's 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 finding that conversation and being able to, but it's it's very difficult to do in the space of a comment box under a news article. You know, that's the reason you wrote written a book. You wrote a, written yeah. a book because yeah. it takes one hundred and ten thousand words exactly. to talk about these people that travel the world and, and took plants from where they, you know, didn't, probably shouldn't have. Probably shouldn't have. But then, mm. then you think about it again, like the the Colombian explosion. Um, when like what they brought back wasn't what we now call corn, mm. but the amount of human involvement that it took to mm. breed those different species together yeah. to get what is now sweet and delicious and huge yeah. corn, that's a completely man-made plant. Yeah. Uh, it's like the, my two dogs upstairs, they are invented animals. True. There's not, you know, like, they're completely yeah. cre- created animals. They were wolves 
and they were it, that's humans' intervention in our mm. food supply. Like, oh, fascinating. It's so fascinating. But you got to like, you got to talk to people in that in that way. I mean, I guess I keep wanting to tell the bad stories. I don't know why. It must be like for someone who says she wants to be a utopic. <laughs> That's no, okay. <laughs> I want to be a solar punk, but I keep going back to the bears. There's like Diffenbachia, which you can buy at Bunnings. They're everywhere. They've got little variegated leaves and everyone has them. Everyone probably in the whole of Sydney yeah. has one because they're really easy to grow. You can't kill them. But they're also called dumb cane because they were plants that were taken to the West Indies to feed the plantation enslaved people because uh. it swelled up their tongues and made them dumb, like couldn't speak or couldn't complain, um, and also made women infertile. Good God. Yeah. So a lot of these, so there is a lot of negative stories to this kind of, you know, plants moving around the world. It's not It's not all great discovery and um, happy, you know, Tahitians having sex with love, beautiful women on the Tahitian Didn't hurt your shores. career, you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he came much later. He, yeah, she sure did. But the Diefenbarkis is a good example, and then apparently in World War II, Himmler found <laughs> out about the as you can imagine, found out about Diffenbachia and did some research. I've read some articles about this because he thought, well, this could be quite convenient to make oh. women infertile, Jewish women and Mate. gypsy women. Boy. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like I feel like it's my responsibility not to be the smug, um, righteous woman but maybe to just keep telling the bad stories. And I have to apologise. Maybe I need to apologise for no, always no, telling okay, the bad but stories. but it's in, in telling those stories you're allowing people to kind of understand, well, I guess this is this is what it took to have a rose bush in my front yard. Exactly. This is how yes. this thing that I call rosemary, which makes my potatoes taste amazing, yes. is doing yeah. or what it took to get it here. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure in the same way that how Australians stole Merino from exactly. Spain. And this, that was Banks. Fuck you. That it was, was too. Banks. Oh, it was too. He was behind it. Here we are talking he about stole. China can't yes. steal it. China's <laughs> going to steal our IP. We can't let him do it. Well, guess what? Our country was built literally on the back, the sheep's back. Correct. Of the merinos that we yeah. stole from Spain so and George III them. and yeah. Banks were behind that because they stole that first merino sheep. <laughs> they did too. <laughs> Motherfuckers. Yeah. Banks, what a bastard. See? He's not as great as he appears. You, you're going to have to come up. We're going to, in the same way that we tried to launch the Easter Bilby, we're going to have to come up with a different name for the banks here. Could we? Do it as a school project. Do it as a, you know, in a way of like, yeah, I'm just like, perhaps, I'm not saying it's like, perhaps you could in the same way that, you know, just a bit of, I'm fascinated with revisionist history and the idea of like a post-colonial look at things. And as we've clearly been having this conversation, it goes all the way to plants, um, not just humans and religions and, and songs and language uh, and space. But perhaps it could be like um, make a short film, for example, about this extraordinary plant and then talk a bit about, so here's this guy, you know, we changed the name of, you know, Fraser Island. We now call it Kagari. We now call it Uluru, and we've all decided that's a good idea. Um, let me tell you about Joseph Banks. And then you go, ba 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 And they say, this plant, which we call the Banksia, lives here, here, Do you really want, like, is it a good, like, because by doing so, you're kind of drawing attention to the colonialist nature of the, the plants around us. Mm. And that might be a way to further explore you know, I mean, you're, that's you're actually art, a you're really video. good idea. You're welcome. Yeah, because I'm just going to start teaching this environmental art course. I can get the students to do it. There you go. 
Thanks, Oshin. Oh, you're welcome. Mm. You're the best. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. That was Dr. Prue Gibson. You can find her book, The Plant Thieves, out wherever you get your books. She's got a bunch of books uh, out at the moment, and uh, they're all rather good. It's fantastic to have her here, and uh, I certainly hope that's changed the way that you... Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You go outside and, and look at the trees around where you live and look for things that belong, things that don't belong. Wonder which bits were shaped by the way that people wanted to see it and which bits just grew that way. Goes to all the way down to grass and moss and things like this. It's fascinating once you start looking around. Thanks to everybody that produced this episode. Andy Ma on audio and video post-production. Abby Benno on production of the show. Rachel Barrett uh, helped us book the guest. And Toe made all the music. Thank you so much for listening. Without you, there is no show. Please do us a kindness. Like it, rate it, subscribe it, share it. If not, just go and look at a leaf have a wonder about if it belongs there and if it does how wonderful that is and if not what's the story behind it i love it see you wednesday